0: With me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9 Isaiah chapter 9 we want to look at verses 6 and 7 this morning uh, let me express my gratitude uh, for the songs that have been sung uh, and the verses that have been read uh, they are they are so much in keeping with the theme of this text and I appreciate how it has built up to this moment The last time I spoke here, I finished two minutes early, so said Elena Johnson to her mother, and so I will endeavor to not finish two minutes early today, whatever two minutes early is. I'm grateful that Elena was paying attention. (laughs) Praise the Lord. From God's word, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers, the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. Amen. Several years ago, I began a personal study of of the Old Testament prophetic verses that deal with Christmas and I presented uh, some here at Subar Road Uh, the first that I believe is the first mention of Christmas in the Bible found in Genesis 315 I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel Christmas is first and foremost about God's destruction of his enemy. And we see this in this passage in Genesis 3. The seed of the woman, Jesus, would crush the head of the serpent, Satan. So the very first prophetic hint of Christmas in the Bible is about God's destruction of his enemy. Next, we looked at Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And we saw that the second prophetic purpose for Christmas is found in the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Christmas is about God seeking us. He is on a mission to redeem us. We were designed to be in relationship with him, but sin messed up everything. Christmas is God seeking us. It's about restoring the broken relationship. In a very real sense, in the incarnation, Jesus was a missionary coming to this world to seek and to save that which was lost. And in this, he is an example for us this Christmas season that we should be on a mission to reach our family and friends and neighbors and co-workers with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So second, we see that Christmas is about God's desire to be with us. But here in our text today, in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, I want you to keep in mind that this text was written 740 to 700 years B.C. Uh, Isaiah's prophetic ministry occurred during the destruction and captivity of the ten northern tribes. So just know that the words we've read this morning These predictive words were spoken over 700 years before Jesus was born. It would be the same as somebody from the 1400s predicting who the head of the United Nations will be today. It would be the same as Christopher Columbus or Leonardo da Vinci or Martin Luther predicting who will win the 2024 presidential election in the United States of America. For Isaiah to record these events with such accuracy and in light of no concept of the historical context of human history seven centuries in the future is an affirmation of the divine inspiration and infallibility of God's word, both the Old and New Testaments. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is no ordinary book. We search for and discover its treasure and its truths, and we must live them. So Christmas is about God's destruction of his enemy. It's also about God's desire to be with us. But here in our passage in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, we learn that Christmas is also about God's dominion in his world. It's about God's dominion in his world. These two verses tell us that someone great and powerful will arrive in the future. A ruler extraordinaire. And that's what we want to look at this morning. First of all, we see that a ruler will emerge. A ruler will emerge. He will be born. And he will be born a child. That is He will be born flesh and blood. He will be a human like us, the text says. But not just a child, he will be an Israelite child. The two words, to us, are written primarily to the children of Israel in this passage. And so he will be born he will be born a child, and more specifically, the text says he will be born an Israelite child. Secondly, he will be a boy. A son is given, the text says. Again, the two words to us preceding the word son identify this boy as the son of an Israelite. So here is a human boy who is the son. Of an Israelite. And Jesus, my friends, was the virgin born son of God and the son of an Israelite woman. Now, I just wanna say at this point, in these days of gender dysphoria, God identifies Messiah's gender as male. Now, you may ask, and I can guarantee you there are folks asking today, why not a daughter? Why isn't Messiah a girl? Well, you'll just have to take that up with God. But I'd be very careful about calling God sexist, racist, or homophobic. You will lose that contest, my friend. Ladies, can we just trust that God knew what he was doing when he said to us, a son is given? And ladies especially at Christmas, never forget that Messiah was born of of the virgin born of Mary, a woman. A human male had nothing to do with the incarnation of our Savior. It was from the seed of the woman that the hope of our salvation, Jesus Christ, would enter this world in human flesh. What an honor was bestowed upon the chaste, godly young woman, Mary. So even without reading the New Testament epistles, we can already see in the Old Testament that God from the beginning had unique and complementary roles and purposes for men and women. Roles that were and are distinct, but in perfect harmony with his purposes for our world so can I just say leave it alone don't mess it up the gender that you were born was no accident be grateful for his perfect plan in your life the child will be born the child will be a boy but thirdly the child will be the boss the ruler the government shall be upon his shoulder. Distinct from the leaders in Israel's day, when this text was written, this ruler will be a competent ruler. My, how my heart longs for competent leadership in government. And you know, when we don't have it, we mourn, as Proverbs 29.2 explains and yet all rulers are sovereignly given to us by God. Daniel delivers God's message to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, and in verse 17 he says, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Daniel records that all rulers... Good and bad rulers are given their authority by God. I think that sometimes God periodically gives us poor leaders and poor rulers so that our hearts will long for the ruler mentioned in these two verses that we've read this morning. This ruler will be boss over Israel, Micah 5.2, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. He will be boss over the world, Zechariah 14.9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one, and his name will be one. All of these passages are prophetic. They are eschatological. Israel longed for her Messiah to arrive, and and, and she couldn't wait for Messiah to arrive, but they failed to see that his coming, his arrival in Bethlehem, was a glorious salvific prelude to his second coming. You know, Pastor Jim spoke last week from 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12, the prophets were writing scripture under the inspiration, but they couldn't understand who they were speaking about. I believe here in Isaiah, Isaiah probably does not comprehend that there are two advents of Christ in these two verses that we've read this morning. You know, it's very important that each of us be careful and diligent students of God's word. Paul says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. About 27% of the Bible was prophetic. That is, it was predictive when written. More than one in four verses or about 1,817 passages predicted the future. At least half of these passages have been precisely fulfilled as God declared. Some have already been fulfilled, like Micah 5.2 and Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Uh, Some are yet to be fulfilled, like Zechariah 14 and Acts 1.10 and 11, which speak of Christ's return to the Mount of Olives. Some passages have double fulfillment, Like Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, and Isaiah 7, 14, which was assigned to Ahaz at the time, but also assigned to the future. And some passages have been partially fulfilled, like Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Why do I share these details with you? We must not shy away from eschatology. All scripture is inspired We can know and understand God's predictive passages. Look what happened when Jesus came the first time in Bethlehem. The scribes were able to tell King Herod exactly where Messiah was born. But the scribes didn't seem to care about their own Messiah's coming. And and in fact, even more tragic they probably knew that wicked King Herod would kill their Messiah. And yet, we see their callousness toward eschatology. You know, my friends, God's ruler has emerged. We celebrate his first coming at Christmas, but he will emerge again. And, 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 and I wonder this morning, are we more interested in that coming than the scribes were in his first coming? Or have we just dismissed eschatology because it's just too hard to understand? Brothers and sisters, we celebrate Christmas. As we do, our our hearts should be filled with wonder and excitement because this same Jesus is coming again for us. He loves us. Jesus is coming again. I served aboard the USS Bella Wood an amphibious assault ship stationed in Japan, and we made an unexpected deployment for six months to the Gulf, and it was a wartime deployment. And I, I went by the exchange and-, and bought a Sony Mavica camera. You know, that was when they first came out. You took a little 3 and a half inch disc, and you put it in the inside, and you could take digital pictures. It was $500. I couldn't believe I spent $500 on that camera. That camera proved to be invaluable on that deployment. I would take pictures of of Marines and sailors doing their jobs, and then I would email them to them, and they would send them home. And I mean, it was a big morale boost for all of us in the unexpected deployment. But I remember coming home about seven days from arriving in Sasebo. I took a picture of myself holding an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper that said, I'll be home soon. And behind me on my bulkhead wall, a wall's a bulkhead if you're not in the Navy, were the pictures of my children. So here's a picture of me holding a sign, I'll be home soon, and my children's pictures are behind me. And I emailed it to Sandy, and, and she, she shared it with the kids. You know, I, I hated being away from home uh, for such long periods of time, sometimes up to a year But I have to tell you, my homecoming was such a thrill to my family, my wife and my children. They would put placards on our house. It was a thrill for me to come home. Our life group just sent care packages to several of our AGC chaplains who are deployed away from home this Christmas. They sent a piece of home to them, and I know that it will be greatly appreciated. But I want to tell you, there's no greater thrill for them than to successfully finish that deployment and then come home. My friends, Jesus has been here once, and he's coming again. And there's nothing to stop him from fulfilling the events of 1 Thessalonians 4 today. Are you excited about Christ's coming? If Jesus were to come before you opened your gifts on Christmas Day, would his coming be the culmination of all of your Christmas planning? Or would he be an interruption in your plans? He was an interruption for the scribes. The text says, a ruler will emerge. God's ruler has emerged and he will emerge again. But secondly we see that the ruler will be exceptional. And we see this in the last part of verse 6. This is not an ordinary child, and this will not be an ordinary ruler. He is a ruler that, first of all, will have exceptional character. He is the wonderful counselor. He's called, therefore, wonderful What more can be added to the word wonderful in describing our Lord Jesus? The adjective is all-encompassing. We could stop here in the text, but we cannot. Because the adjective modifies the noun counselor. He was, he will be, and he will be again a wonderful counselor. Jesus will never lead you astray. When the queen of Sheba came to Jerusalem to test the wisdom of Solomon, she was blown away by Solomon's counsel and wisdom. The text says in 1 Kings 10, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, and behold, the half was not told me. One thousand years later, it would be said Of the same queen. The queen of the south will rise up at this judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. He is the wonderful counselor. Our human hearts long for competent and wise counsel and leadership. This ruler is the wonderful counselor. You know, I have to tell you, at strategic times in my life, I needed good counsel as I faced difficulty and important life changing decisions. My youth pastor in Royal Oak, Michigan counseled me to come to BJU for my education. That was a life changing decision. While at BJU, Dr. George Eustra helped me immensely in my decision on whether or not to become a United States Marine. He didn't even know that he helped me. i had always wanted to serve my country as a Marine, but I did not want to at the cost of preparing for full-time vocational ministry. And when I discovered that I could do both, I sought Dr. Eustra's counsel. He had been a former Marine officer. And I eventually enlisted in the Marine Corps, and God opened my eyes to where he would have me serve as a Navy chaplain for 27 years. Jim Jones, my father-in-law, was such a blessing to me as I served in the Navy as a chaplain. He had served for 27 years in the Navy as a chaplain as well, 12 years on active duty and the rest in the Reserves. And I can remember calling him on a number of occasions with problems that had come up as a chaplain, and he would give me wise counsel. You know, I'm so grateful for these wise counselors in my life. But their counsel given to me was rooted in their love for the wonderful counselor in this text. The people living on earth when Christ came the first time gladly listened to him. In Luke 2, 47, even when Jesus was a child, they were amazed at his understanding and his answers. In Mark 22, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. In Matthew 23, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes and lawyers all failed to trick Jesus in his words. And the people listened to every answer Jesus gave. And the text says, and when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. May God give us wise counselors like this wonderful counselor. Can you imagine this world someday being ruled absolutely by somebody whose name is Wonderful Counselor? O come, thou wisdom from on high, and order all things far and nigh. To us the path of knowledge show and cause us in her ways to go. Rejoice! Rejoice! The ruler will not only have an exceptional character, but the ruler will be an exceptional combatant. Note the name Mighty God. Two things we discern from this name given to this future leader. He is, first of all, God. The child, the son of verse 6a is also God. How can this be? Well, John tells us how. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. When Jesus claimed to be God, the religious leaders accused him of blasphemy and crucified him. But here in their very scriptures, the scriptures that they said they repeatedly studied, it is clear that Messiah would be both a man and God. You know, I, I think some of them knew Jesus was God and didn't care. Now, you think about who it was that really committed blasphemy. So just as Herod's scribes, I mentioned earlier, who were callous to the, to the eschatological prediction of Christ's birth, these religious leaders in Israel were callous to this major prophetic predictive passage that we see in our text today. The word of God had become subordinated to their traditions and they missed and crucified their Messiah. He's not just God, but the text says he's mighty God. This is a reference to our God as a mighty warrior who will conquer all of his enemies and bring to fruition all of God's purposes for the ages. He will bring to pass all that was mentioned in verses 3 to 5 of Isaiah chapter 9. Who is this mighty God? Revelation 19, 13 tells us, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has written, King of kings and Lord of lords. My friends, this is, Human child born in 6a is also mighty God. O come, O come thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times didst give the law in cloud and majesty and awe. Rejoice, rejoice. The ruler will not only have an exceptional character and be an exceptional combatant, but he will offer an exceptional connection. He is the everlasting father. Now, how can the son be the father? Oh yes, you explain to me the mystery of the Trinity, and I'll answer that question for you. Brothers and sisters, just accept the truth that there are some things in the Bible about our God that are just too wonderful for us to comprehend. And here is one of them. He is everlasting. That means he is eternal. Note, this is said 700 years before the child was born. The human child to be born in verse 6a already exists at the time of this writing. He is the everlasting father. The child to be born, who is also mighty God, has already existed from eternity past, even as Isaiah records this prophecy. Messiah is called everlasting. In, a, in the very same way that the Father is called the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, 9. I appreciate so much that passage being read today and, 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 and Brother Rick's uh, comments about the Ancients of Days. But he's, he's a Father. He's not just everlasting. He's a Father. He is not just perfectly connected in relationship with the Trinity But this speaks of his familial relationship with his people. He is a shepherd-like ruler of his sheep. As a father is always approachable, he loves his children. Such is mighty God who will rule one day on this earth from Jerusalem. He is the everlasting father. You know, sometimes God gives us great leaders... And we follow them and we rejoice in their leadership and in their governing. But even the best of leaders that human history has produced have all died. They've all left their people. But this ruler will never leave, he will never abandon his people, for he will never die. Oh, come. Thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows, put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice! The ruler will not only be have an exceptional character, be an acceptable com- combatant, and offer an exceptional connection, but he will fourthly. Be an exceptional consolation. He is the Prince of Peace. This world will never know true peace until the Prince of Peace rules. And he is coming. We can have now peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But we live in a very troubled world. But a day will come when the child born, the one who is already the wonderful counselor and mighty God, the everlasting father, that one will bring the peace that our hearts long for to this earth. I believe this title is a reference not only to the peace with God and the peace of God that we have as children of God in Christ, but I also believe that this peace specifically refers to the 1,000-year reign of Christ recorded in Revelation 20. Verse 6 of that chapter says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a 1,000 years. Now, I want to meddle a little bit here. There are some who just don't believe that there's going to be a millennium, a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on earth, even though it's mentioned six times in the first seven verses of Revelation 20. They somehow, and I'll say sincerely, spiritualize away the six references. But I would just say, if the millennium is not real, then what about hell, the lake of fire, that is mentioned only three verses later? And what about the great white throne of God mentioned only four verses later? Are they real? Or do we spiritualize them away also? Where do we stop in spiritualizing away the plain meaning of the text? These two verses in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 describing the characteristics of the one who will rule in the future, are very similar to the historical future events of Revelation 19 through 21. My friends, listen. Human history is about the glory of God in redemption. It's not about us. What would bring God more glory than for a very rebellious nation that hated and crucified his son, the very nation that has now for over 2,000 years rejected him, what could bring more glory to God than a generation of people from that nation, as a nation, turning in repentance and faith to the one whom they pierced as their Messiah? You know, the Bible is a Jewish book, it's not a Gentile book. While I praise God for a remnant of Jews who are and and have been saved in this church age, uh, two of them are my chaplains. I praise God for them. There's coming a day when God will again deal with the nation of Israel in his loving kindness. He will keep his covenant with them. One of my Messianic Jewish chaplains is a godly man, and we have wonderful fellowship. And and one time we finished our our time together and he, he looked at me and he said, He said, Chaplain Brown, I'm so glad that God grafted you into our tree. Now you think about that. I'm so glad that God grafted you into our tree. The government of Emmanuel will procure and perpetuate peace among the nations of the world. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords and plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Micah 4 3. And then in Isaiah 11, uh, further describes this millennial peace the wolf and the lamb, the calf and the lion, the cow and the bear, the child and the cobra they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain the text says o come desire of nations come bind in one the hearts of all mankind bid thou our sad divisions cease and be thyself our king of peace rejoice rejoice the ruler will emerge the ruler will be exceptional, but thirdly, the ruler will be established. And we see this in the first part of verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The angel said to Mary, Concerning the child supernaturally conceived in her womb. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Again in Daniel 2.44 God says of the future kings and kingdoms of this world, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. The Virgin's son will be the rightful heir to David's throne and he will inherit the promises all of the promises of the Davidic covenant one writer said this future kingdom is not a kingdom of mere might and triumph of force over enemies but it's a kingdom of righteousness attainable only and and through Messiah your throne O God is forever and ever The scepter of your righteousness, the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, your God, hath anointed you with the oil of gladness above, beyond your companions. The songwriter said, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice! Rejoice! Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. He will emerge. He will be exceptional. He will be established. And finally, this ruler is inevitable. Inevitable. And we see this in that last phrase. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This expression is used four times in scripture. It is an attestation that God means business. He is Yahweh of hosts. He is Lord of the armies of heaven. Hosts of angels, myriads of angels serve him. He is zealous to complete these events in human history. Messiah came in the incarnation, and he will come again, just as reported by Isaiah. I love what Spurgeon says about God's zeal here. He says it's his divine arm. This is the fervency of the infinite. God guarantees that these things will happen. And God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his covenant. The coming of the millennial kingdom in which Christ will reign on this earth depends solely upon God. Not on anybody else. Not on the nation of Israel. Messiah will rule because God has promised it. You know, the last phrase ought to remove any doubts in our minds about our God's ability and his passion and fervency to complete all of his work. The baby Jesus born in Bethlehem is the earnest of what is yet to come. The king is coming. He will reign upon this earth and after for all eternity. Christmas is about God's dominion In his world. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. I wonder this morning. Does he reign in your heart? I can think of no greater time of the year. For you to give your heart to Christ. If you've not trusted Christ as your savior. If you do not know Christ. I I encourage you to embrace him. If you know Christ, but perhaps your life has been distracted or disoriented by the things of this world, I encourage you, my friend, to restore the rightful place of dominion of your Savior in your heart. Christmas is about God's destruction of his enemy. It's about God's desire to be with you. And it's about God's dominion in his world. And all three are tied together in his wonderful plan for the ages. O come, thou key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high, and close the path to misery. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee. O Israel, let us pray. Lord, I I pray that as I've humbly tried to exalt your authority and dominion in this world, Lord, it is my heart's desire that that authority be evident in the lives of your people. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here today who does not know Christ as their Savior, Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit will convict their heart and draw them to yourself. And Lord, for your people, uh, we, we are distracted by many things, some good things, some bad things. Oh, Lord, help us to keep the main thing, the main thing, and that's you. May your authority be evident in our life. May our submission to that authority be a witness to others. And Lord, as we think about the incarnation, as Jesus coming to be a missionary to us, may we be missionaries to our neighbors this Christmas season and bring to them the only hope they have in the gospel of our Savior. These things we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.